Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. March 24th, 2015, episode number 75, Honey Bunny. March is coming to a close and we are eagerly awaiting the beekeeping season. The last vestiges of winter are winding down here in New Jersey. And to that end, I want to bring this episode a few items that have kept us busy while we are looking for spring to start in earnest. We named the episode Honey Bunny to play on the transition of honey-related events in the episode and an homage to the Easter Bunny who will be coming soon and, quite frankly, not soon enough. I know I have a reasonable number of items to cover, so let me curtail the chit-chat and tell you, first, this is Kevin England. Hi. How are you all doing? And here's what we have in store for this episode. Our first feature will recall our trip to the Melavino Meadery a few weeks back. We were welcomed by Sergio Motella that day, and I was able to get a short interview with him, and we're pleased to tell you that he has a lot going on. I recently found a recipe for honey-based caramel, and I'm going to tell you how to make it at home. Yep, you're going to want it, as this is spectacular. Flower power! We also made a foray to the Philadelphia Flower Show, and there were a few beekeeping notes to bring about the show. Had a good time there with my lovely lady. Some not-so-good news to report on glyphosate, which is also known as Roundup. A little ditty on honeycomb and its design. Bees in space, pollination for mankind. A quick note about the promotion being hosted by Phil Chandler to save the black bees. And I think at the bottom of the hour, bottom of the pile, we'll have a few listener mails to run through. So before I get to the local hive report, you can write me at kevin at bkcorner.org. Our website is bkcorner.org. That wasn't too hard to figure out. And uh, I'll give a promotion here or there for our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash nwnjba. A couple new videos up there for you to check out. One, the honey caramel one that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. Okay, local hive report, here we go. This past Friday was the first day of spring 2015, but one could be fooled by the snow that fell most of the day and the five inches of fresh powder that greeted us on Saturday morning. The previous week I went out to check the hives in earnest for the first time in the year and found some mixed news. It was March 8th and I wasn't surprised to find that we lost some hives. I'm discouraged at the losses, but will bear my soul here for the record for the whole purpose of this podcast was to record our journey, good, bad, or indifferent. There were nine hives out in the yard, and three of them made it through. I could blame it on the weather, but I know that some of it was poor preparedness from the fall. And we did have a poor fall, as in there wasn't much nectar flow. And I did what I could to get food to our bees and was optimistic, but also pragmatic about the chances, especially given how bad the winter was. When I checked them on that day, March 8th, I only cracked the lids and put some fondant on the ones that I found alive and buttoned everything up. 
I didn't want to be cracking the seals as I knew that it was likely that there would be additional cold days and even colder nights in store before we finally someday get to t-shirt weather. The weather here in New Jersey and across much of the United States, I'm sure, has been unyielding. Now I'm recording this part on a Monday and yesterday I went out and checked the hives. Actually, my objective was to take the three surviving hives and put them in positions in my bee yard where I wanted them, but darn if they weren't flying. 38 degrees and they were out. I typically don't see them fly until it's 45 or 50 degrees. So I was out there, had a bee suit on, and I changed my tactic and decided to do a post-mortem on the ones that I lost to learn what happened. And for what it's worth, I'm going to take you through what I found. So hive number one, I'm going to say this was flat out my fault. It had a reasonable sized cluster when it perished, but it was pretty much out of food. I tried in the weeks leading up to the first frost to feed it, but was behind all fall, and it's apparent now that they just didn't get enough stores on board. The cluster spanned two or three frames in the second box, and there was honey nearby, but it appears it did not have enough food for some reason to keep it going. Now, I've seen clusters that size make it through, and the demise of this hive probably had to do with the honey box that I had on top. As I said, I fed the hive, and they stored whatever they had in that top box, and I decided to leave it on for the winter. I thought rationalizing that it was better to leave it half empty on top than to pull it away and leave them hungry, and I made the decision to leave it there, and I know in retrospect it was the bad decision. It seems late in the year, whenever they could have, they pulled it down and the box was paramount to empty. And empty space at the top of a hive is not a good thing to have. And especially when it's a brutally cold winter. The colony was of good size, but no match for the cold. And even with honey next door, they did not make it through. If I had to do it all over again, I know that I would have done this one differently for sure. So hive number two was the poly hive, or the styrofoam style hive. This box simply did not have enough bees in the cluster to keep the heat going all winter long. There were stores in the box, but it had the classic look of a small cluster that couldn't generate enough heat to keep everyone warm. This hive, I know, was robbed out late in the season, and it took some punishment going into winter. The stores were robbed out, and I fed them, but my guess is they couldn't overcome the loss of the bees in November, and no amount of insulation on this hive was going to make the difference. Hive number three was my eight-frame hive. On this one, I am literally lost. The hive is empty. I mean... Complete and utterly empty, devoid of stores. All three boxes had nothing but drawn comb with maybe one frame having some pollen in it. And I'm a loss at a loss to describe its condition. I found a small teacup-sized cluster on the frames and about another cup of bees on the bottom board with the queen. I am confident that there was a reasonable-sized cluster in this box in the fall and had plenty of stores. 
If you'd have asked me going in which hive would have survived, this is the one that I thought had the most on board and the largest cluster. I, I can only surmise that perhaps after I shut everything down, this hive got whacked somehow. I, I just don't know. I can't explain what its condition is. It's the only plausible hypothesis that I have to describe what I found. And I wonder if I'll ever know why this hive is in that condition. Hive number four did not make it either. And the interesting thing about one, two, three, and four were they were the ones closest to the woods in my yard and the ones that got the sun last. The other ones were farther down in the row and they were the ones that picked up the sun earlier in the morning. But I don't know if that's just a factoid or or it means something this hive had a similar look to hive number two some stores left over but not enough bees in the box i did note on this box that the slide out tray had some varroa on the bottom i went back through my records and this is the one hive i didn't sample and it seems evident to me that the mites took the colony down it had that classic look hive number five was having a field day robbing, robbing hive number four. And I know that some discourage this, and, you know, if you have it dead out, you're supposed to close it and make sure your hives are disease-free. I know my hives are disease-free. They don't have American fowl brood or anything that I'm concerned about. So hive number four was generally a healthy colony, and there was no risk, of course, of mite infestation as they perished with the colony. In opening hive number five, it looked fairly good, but didn't have much in the way of food. And darn if I want to lose them at this point, waiting for some warm days to finally come here, maybe in the beginning of April. Today is Monday the 23rd, as I'm recording this, and Sharon said that there were some bees on the crocus flowers that came up literally this morning. We looked at them yesterday, and there were no blooms, and today she said the blooms were open and the bees were on them. Mind you, it was probably only 35, 40 degrees today, and currently, as I'm recording this, I think it's like 15 outside. So hive number six and number seven look the same as number five. They were actively cleaning out new bees, or the old bees, and to be safe, I put fondant on each one of these hives, five, six, and seven. Six was reasonably heavy, and seven was moderately heavy. Number five was pretty light. Now, I think I have this right, that five, six, and seven were the Charlie Ilsley hive splits pulled early in the season. That's an interesting notation. Charlie's hives were survivor hives that overwintered a couple of seasons. And that's where that stock came from. Hive number one was a new hive that I started with a Carniolian queen. And two and three were swarms captured from last year from a beekeeper's property down the road. Hive number eight was another split from Charlie. It did not survive. It's the one that I did not feed in the fall. It was an all-medium stack, and it was gone early in the winter. I suppose what I was trying to see there is whether or not they could make it through on their own accord. And it had some stores and a reasonable number of bees, but it didn't stand a chance against this winter. 
The last hive in the yard was the top bar, which we started with the church cutout that didn't make it through. And then we replaced it with a nuke late in the season and tried to nurse it along to see if we can get it through the winter. It didn't have a lot of bees, and even though I fed it, it, it didn't survive. I'm not terribly surprised, but I am disappointed to find that. And I'm still very eager to get some sort of bees in that box and get it going this year. So I could look at the results, and it's pretty obvious that they're less than spectacular. But I could also look at the inputs and know that we had a fairly poor fall with little forage, if any. And admittedly, there's beekeeper error in here, too. Whenever you're looking at the situation, you have to be brutally honest about how you manage your bees. And I'm always pretty hard on myself when I come to this situation. So I know that should I get in this same situation again next year, I will feed earlier. And I will get the boxes loaded or collapse them down into smaller, less spacious colonies. I would also consider insulating the hives if I think they are in trouble. In fact, next year, I'm thinking about Bob Kloss's bee condos and how each year his nukes are making it through. And specifically, probably, because they are side-by-side and sharing the heat, I think I might put all my hives together on some sort of rail and see if that is going to help the situation. I also wouldn't rule out insulating my hives in the same way that John Gott was doing in an episode just a few back. So I suppose I could probably share more, but I think that's enough. I'll lick my wounds and take the hives that I have and go forth with my 2015 game plan. I have to say that I did have a smile on my face yesterday when I came inside the house and I was sitting on the couch and that smell of a beehive was on my hands And for the first time this season, I got that sensation that spring is not that far off and hope springs eternal. Before I close down the local hive report, I have to share an observation from the past few weeks. You know, we've had our share of snow this year, and it has hung around mostly all winter. About two weeks ago, the weather warmed up to highs below 40 but above freezing during the day and the snow melted off the fields and the yards and grass of our neighbors. It is that dynamic that intrigued me as the conditions were perfect to recognize something about the microclimate where my house is. I've said it before, we live in the bottom of the Amwell Valley. The valley is situated between the Sauerland Mountains and the Kingwood Ridge. Not only that, our property is, a, um, is in a hole in the valley, hence we call it Brand Hollow. And I came down from work out of the town of Hopewell and drove down the hill down into the valley and noticed on those 40 degree days that the snow had melted on all of the properties in the valley proper. But as soon as I turned into the road, my grass still had inches of snow throughout my entire yard. Literally, around the corner, the grass was exposed and the snow had melted, and there were four or five inches of snow still on the ground throughout my property. So one thing we always tell our new beekeepers is don't put your hive where the snow melts last. Duh. In my case, I'm ground central for that. 
You know, I've also been looking at dejection on where the sun is each morning in context of my hives as I've been out walking for exercise and realize that the sun is very late to the party. These observations fortify my resolve to get my hives out of my property into a more suitable place. I've never thought our property was spectacularly conducive to bees, but I've always rationalized that I could get by. Now I'm think, thinking that that's a foolish notion. So that wraps up the local hive report. I'm very much interested in getting into our hives and getting some queen castles filled this year. This weekend, I'm heading off to Florida to go visit my father and my mother-in-law. A good time of year, I guess, to take a break, but a funny time because spring is right around the corner. I have a bunch of beekeeping activities that I want to finish up, but actually Sharon and I spent the time tidying up the house for our guests who are going to look after the house while we're gone. And uh, beekeeping stuff kind of had to put a back seat on that uh, as I look around knowing I'm going to be away next weekend and come back the following weekend it will be spring by the time we get back and I guess I'm going to have to find time somewhere in the night to sneak off and build the final boxes and do whatever plans that I have but uh, I'm just grateful that spring is here once again and I don't want to squander it all right enough of that Let's go ahead and head into segment number one for this episode. Segment number one I call Magnificent Melovino. Sharon and I agreed to take a ride out to the Melovino Craft Meadery in Vauxhall, New Jersey. Vauxhall is the neighboring community with the better known town of Milburn, New Jersey, not too far from New York City. The visit was to fulfill a long-time desire to reconnect with Sergio Motella and learn about how he was progressing with his dream to own and operate a meadery in New Jersey. I had heard about Sergio and what he was doing in New Jersey and had him on my radar and actually made a connection with him when he presented at the 2014 NJBA Spring Meeting. I was able to film the presentation and talk to him on the side that day and got his business card with the notion of circling back once he got more established. Incidentally, that video is up on YouTube if you want to check it out. It was 24 months ago he started on his journey to open his mead business in New Jersey, and his store has been open for approximately five months on the day that we visit, which incidentally was the last day of February. Sergio's business is behind a shopping center. I mean behind, literally, behind a staple store in the back of a shopping center, and you have to drive alongside the building like a delivery truck going out back to drop off product to find the door that enters into the meadery. So, yep, it's a little out of the way, but the visit is a hidden experience and a great way to spend the afternoon. We found it with no difficulty at all, walked up the steps to the small landing and with the unassuming door that has the Melovino logo on it, stepped right in. Upon entering, you come into the retail store, which is a small room that has a large rack holding mead, some shirts on display for sale, and a reception desk where they sign you in for the tour. From there, you walk into the reception area and combination tasting room. 
We were there early and got to spend a few minutes with Sergio in the tank room before the tour started, and after getting reacquainted, we returned to the reception room and participated in the tour with about 20 other customers who had come in for that session. They run on the weekends and, I'm guessing, about four tours a day, and they take about an hour and a half, two hours long from what I gather. So the metery is open on the weekends, and there was a mix of young adults and older participants from my generation, not that I'm an old man, in the crowd, but it was just neat to see the different uh, cultures being represented (laughs) from young and old. So Sergi himself opens up the tour with an informative story about his journey to get started in the business. He talks of his discovery that led to the product that he sells today, his application with the Alcoholic Beverage Commission to be the first meadery in the state of New Jersey, and a little bit about his team of friends and acquaintances that help him keep the operation running. He did a really great job of telling a story and took the time to make the visit an experience. Along the way, you learn that he has a Portuguese heritage, and it was a typical family activity to make wine for his family in those days, and that it was his grandfather who served as his inspiration and introduced him to the spark to create wine at home and get into home brewing. Sergio's passion for home brewing is apparent, and his association with a home brewing club led him to be in competitive competitions with the brews that he had made. Exposure to this brewing scene gave him an idea about making mead. It was there that he was exposed to that. And by happenstance, he started submitting meads in with his beer at certain competitions and won right out of the gate. Call it beginner's luck and success with the craft of mead. It has resulted in his dream to grow his business. His tour continued with more information, but I only provided the foundation of what he shared as I want you to enjoy the tour when you stop in, and I won't give it all away. He finished up the introduction side of the tour, and then we moved from the reception room to the tank room, where Sergio walked everyone through the process of what meat is and how they make it. It was apparent that a number of the participants probably didn't grasp what meat was or how it was made, and did a great job of just kind of breaking it down to them. He spoke of the mead that he's made in the past, the various flavors, and the labor involved in the preparation of the batches that he has for sale, and a bit about the various products that he's made in different combinations. He turned to cover what was in the tanks in the mead-making room and answered questions all along the way that anybody had from the crowd. He kept them really engaged, and everybody seemed enthusiastic about learning how this all worked. In the room, you could see the equipment used to manufacture the product. The tanks were labeled with future lines that are in progress and a stack of ingredients that will presumably be the next products on the horizon. I was pleased to hear that he's using local sources where he can, sourcing some of his honey products from Grant Stiles, a well-known and respected provider from New Jersey. There was one tank in the room that had a ghost label on it, and Sergio expressed that some of his blends have had a lot of interest, including and especially the ghost pepper one that is in progress. Satisfied with learning about the process and anticipating the tasting part of the program, 
everyone returned to the reception area and gathered around a long bar that runs most of the length of the room. Glasses were set out, and Sergio took everyone through six of his products that he had for sale on that day. Now, meat is not a grape wine. It is a product made from honey, and he explained what the journey is for the mead products that he had for tasting that day. The one we started with was a simple mead made from wildflower honey called Swinger. It could be noted that each of his products have a really fascinating name, and there's a story behind the name that he tells to explain how it came about. If you haven't tried mead and you are of age, maybe this has piqued your interest. Sergio shared that mead is the quickest growing craft beverage in the country, growing even faster than hard ciders, which you see advertised all on all on TV. Um, Mike's hard cider and all that stuff. I was kind of surprised to learn that. Behind this growth is small craft meaderies such as Melovino's. You can do a tour as a small group or book the meadery as a single group on off hours. It would be a great outing for a beekeepers association and they love to accommodate beekeepers. They also have special nights on Fridays where you could just walk in or at least they were planning that. You didn't have to take the tour. You could just come on in and taste their wares. And as for an example, they have some special nights. Uh, It seems on Valentine's Day week. They had a mead pairing with chocolate. I have to say my favorite was Sanofia. I think that's how you say it. It has three different types of honey, including a buckwheat honey, which gives it a little deeper color and complexity. And it also had a blend of three different oaks added to the tank. And I have to say it was real smooth and tasty. And I like the oak finish on it. Hopefully I got the right product and didn't screw that up, but I think I did from my notes. So after the tour, we hung around and had a chance to speak with Sergio one-on-one. And I'm going to break away now and let you listen in on our conversation. So we're here with Sergio. We have a chance to have a private moment with you. We've just finished a tour. And Sergio, this place is spectacular. We really appreciate you giving the time to us to come over and check check out your operation here yeah thanks yeah uh, not a problem my pleasure so we're really excited to find out how far you've come since the last time we talked to you you were trying to get a license and get up and running and now you've been operational we're we're standing in your mead room right now with Mm -hmm. the tanks in the background and uh it, it looks like your operation is just going in a positive direction how do you feel about what you have going on here yeah, so far everything's been uh, going great. I mean, everybody's New Jersey has responded extremely well to mead. I would say, uh, especially since most people that come in through our doors have never had mead before, and they leave enthused that they learned something new. They have the social currency uh, that they're very happy and glad to talk about to all their friends and family about, which has been helping spreading the word as well. Yeah, so, mead is not something that's known, so this is a great uh, curiosity for people. And you yeah. guys do a great job at explaining what's going on. Mm-hmm making your product available. Right now, you're not shipping your product. You're still working kind of right out of this facility. Yep. We're in Vauxhall, New Jersey. I don't know if you want to give the full address for people. Yeah, we're at 2933 Vauxhall Road in Vauxhall, New Jersey. It's right, We're basically right on the border of Milburn. 
um, in the in the rear of the Milburn shopping mall. So, uh, it, so it is one of those things where you're going to see the, the shopping center and you're going to go around the back and see the door. Yeah. It's easy to find, but it's like a hidden little gem back here. Yeah, we like to think of it as like a little speakeasy. Uh, you know, it's, uh, and we're not oblivious to the fact that we're not easy to find, too. We always joke about that yeah. during the tours, as you heard. And, um, but we always say at least it makes for a better story. Now, when you say, oh, yeah, I found this place behind the mall. There's no signs up front, but they make this wine made from honey. Yeah. Uh, it makes for a good uh, starting point for well, the conversation. Well, when you're in that mecca of a store someday as you get there, <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully. you'll be able to talk about these days of, of growing out of a, a facility like this. So where are you going with this, uh, Sergio? How, how do you progress your business? What's your next stage? Yeah, because right now we're basically what I call in boutique mode. We're only selling all of the mead that we make here at the Meadery or through our online store. Uh, our plans are to basically start distributing to all the liquor stores, bars, and restaurants as we can in New Jersey as well as in as as well as in New York, uh, and then hopefully within the next year and a half to two years, we'll start going out of state as well. So we're just gearing up and trying to ramp up our productions, trying to bring some money in also because uh, we are not paying ourselves right now. It's been a, a labor of love, uh, or like the Walt Disney quote. Uh, is basically our internal mantra where he says, you know, we don't make money, uh, we don't make movies to make money, but we need to make money to make more movies. Right. Uh, and that's our goal, and that's kind of how... And you have your, your, maybe they won't like this term, but you have your minions who come in here yeah. and help you. They believe <laughs> in the cause, and yeah. that's the best way to make this product with a little bit of love and, and people who support you. We're standing here next to a cabinet that has a couple ribbons hanging off of it, and yeah, these are we just know that you're few, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, having a good time with that side of the business too, where you're going out and getting people, um, getting some notoriety about what you're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. I try to do as many events as possible, either speaking to beekeeping clubs or uh, homebrew clubs. Even uh, I've also been on one or two podcasts. Or had a few articles uh, written about us, like some from some local papers, or even just like an internet blogger. Uh, so you know, we've been trying to do whatever we can to get the word out, basically. But uh, no, it's been a fun ride thus far, and yeah, like I said, everybody's been accepting mead into their lives extremely well uh, here in New Jersey. So yeah. we're very happy to, to say that we're doing really, really great. But at the same time, everybody does see like a much bigger uh, picture at the finish line. I think that's why everybody's sacrificing right now, you know. And when we have a good weekend, it's not like any of the people that come in, that come and help us after their full-time jobs. Uh, when we have a good weekend, it's not like, hey, Serge, throw us 100 bucks or something. No, yeah. but everybody sits there after all the tour and tastings are over, and we're thinking, this is a great weekend. This is awesome. We can put that money towards getting that bottling line so we don't have to spend four 12-hour days bottling everything uh, or getting bigger tanks. So everybody's kind of like has the same game plan and sees the same final goals. The, the vibe around here feels like a, a band who's trying to make it big, right? It's, that's yeah. kind of cool. And, kind of like starving you know, artists You and I, right we've now. been talking yeah. about this day for a while, coming up here, getting a preview, and I, I'm still going to say to you, somewhere down the road, I'd love to have a, just a one-on-one -on -one interview where you yeah. and I could talk about the craft and where you see it going and everything. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, personally, I'm proud of you. Yeah, uh, I know what your message was. I know your passion for this. And from what I see around here, you are uh, number number 10 on the dial of trying to make your dream happen. And good yeah. for you. Um, yeah, tell us about that. your website address so yeah, that people can schedule a tour and come on over here. Yeah, very easy. Mellovino.com uh, is our website. We have 
plenty of information about mead and how to book uh, tours and tastings uh, to, to the meadery. Uh, it's a really great time. Everybody comes in, either couples or groups of friends, and everybody leaves here uh, having a great old time. Uh, you taste up to six of our meads. You go home with a free, uh, a free glass, Melovino wine glass, or mead glass, rather. And um, yeah, everybody leaves here having a great time, experiencing something new. And they all love at least a few of our meads and take bottles home with them as well. We have a retail room here at the meadery. And um, besides that, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of even special events going on throughout the year. We had an extremely successful wine and um, sorry, mead and chocolate pairing night. Oh, Actually, really? That's, uh, the, that's the night before deep. Valentine's Day. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you know, but mead is also considered to be an aphrodisiac. Um, people left here drinking plenty of mead and, and eating plenty of chocolate. I got a few thank you emails the next day, uh, to say the least. So, Neat. <laughs> yeah. But that was actually a really, really great, fun, uh, fun event. We're definitely going to do that um, probably twice a year. Might have another one in this fall, probably. But we'll definitely always do one right before Valentine's Day. Yeah. For sure. Wow, that's great. Well, listen, we're going to follow you. Uh, we'll keep coming back. And if you'll have us, um, whatever you need to promote, we're, we're happy to support beekeeping. I, I have to end with this. Yeah. How are your hives doing? This is a typical beekeeper question. Yeah. You still got some hives and are you? No, I, I took the Rutgers beekeeping course uh, uh, last year. And I'm actually planning on starting my first four oh, okay. hives this spring, Yeah, actually. So, yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to that. I got all the hive body parts. It's uh, I got all the frames. I got everything ready to go. I just got to assemble everything and get a few shipments of bees. And... That's, the, that's the pinnacle of this is the terroir, right, of having your own hives and understanding right. that side of it. And... Yeah, absolutely, because as we know here, I mean, I use, I think, six or seven different honey varietals right now that we've uh, used, and each one is, you know, str strategically used for specific recipes uh, because of how different uh, di uh, honey varietals can be. So some work better with other ingredients than others. Some are really nice just showcased on their own. Uh, with no other interference besides the flavor and aroma of the honeys. So, yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to having, hopefully being able to harvest my own honey within the next two years, yeah. enough to maybe make one big batch of my own honey, and I'll probably call it Keeper's Keep. That's, you know? That would be great. So, uh, yeah. so that would actually be pretty fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to that possibility. So thanks again for the invitation. We really appreciate the chance to come up here and visit with you and you opening the doors to us uh, Good luck with it, and be sure that we, we uh, will be promoting you and, and wishing you the best in your business. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming by. I think you could tell we really enjoyed Sergio's hospitality. He uh, took the time to speak with us. I've only met him once and um, felt pretty comfortable having a chat with him and getting the and participating in the tour just like a regular customer. Um, I feel bad about putting him on the spot about his hives. I know last time I talked to him, he was talking about getting started. Maybe our chat's going to motivate him, but I can't say uh, I'm surprised as I couldn't figure out how he'd ever find any time to get some hives going there. But maybe somewhere along the drive, along the way, he'll get things going. I've said before that uh, Sharon and I are not much for drinking alcohol, but we were happy to buy a few bottles to bring home. How could we not? And um, we really enjoyed the second and third products that we tasted. We contemplated giving them away for gifts, but actually we might just crack them open and enjoy them at home. Why the heck not? I've just, uh, we're close to finishing the mead that I, I talked about in the last episode. And 
we shared that out with uh, some others and when it's gone we will then crack into the melavino stuff as it so happens our association is partnering with the raritan valley beekeepers association to do a tour this weekend and i'm a bit bummed out as we're not going to be here as i said earlier but this week they started the tastings of an highly anticipated from me uh, product that they were going to release called nice's pie this product is a mix of honey, and instead of using water, they used a locally sourced apple cider from Mellick's Orchard, a Hunterdon County company, by the way, located in Tewksbury, New Jersey. And they aged it on cinnamon and vanilla, and I say we got to get us some of that. If you want to learn more about this, again, I'll give you the website melovino.com m-e-l-o-v-i-n-o.com there you could sign up you could order products they'll ship them to you you can subscribe to the newsletter that will keep you abreast of the events that they have coming up tell you about specials new releases i know they were planning on doing something where on fridays you didn't have to take the tour you could just stop in and sample the products um, kind of like a speakeasy as he mentioned earlier uh, it really is a good experience, and I don't ask this much of the listeners, but if you're out in that area or you happen to be somewhere in the vicinity of New York City, it's not that far of a drive. Make a day trip of it. Support the business. You won't regret it. You're really going to enjoy the product, and we wish the best to Sergio, and he is on our radar to come back and have him do an interview for the podcast. So really appreciate him taking the time, and hope you enjoyed our talk with him. Segment number two is on honey caramel. I've made caramel in the past for ice cream using regular sugar recipe. Caramel is not really that complicated to make and it only takes a few simple ingredients, sugar, heavy cream, butter, and vanilla. I knew that you could make it with honey and I thought it would be interesting to find a recipe and see how it turns out. Ideally, what I'm interested in knowing is that if honey adds a positive trait to the taste, or will it be off, meaning I'm sure it'll be good, but when you think about caramel, you eat it because you like the taste of caramel and you don't want it to have this kind of odd, off-color sweetness. I find that at times when you make things with honey, the honey imbues its own flavor and adjusts whatever the mind was it expecting and causes discontent with the recipe that's especially true for some breads and cakes that you make and when you're using a really heavy earthy um, dark honey like the fall honey because it gives you that bit of a molasses taste a, a flavor that i'm not personally fond of now molasses has its place and i'm thinking gingerbread cookies which have a predominant flavor profile that has a lot to do with the use of molasses most times. Now, sometimes you want that deep, dark, fall-style honey flavor to come through, but most times when I cook with honey, I'm looking to use that light amber with a high sugar content and floral notes so that it tastes good and has a sweet, nice, round flavor and not that deep, overcooked sugar flavor that can come with molasses-type overtones. Wow, did I sound a little food TV there? What what the heck was that about? 
The recipe that I used was the first one that popped up in the Bing search results. The web address for it is naturalsweetrecipes.com slash honey-caramels. As mentioned earlier, the caramel for this recipe has four ingredients. One cup of honey instead of sugar. Three quarters cup of heavy cream. One and a half teaspoons of pure vanilla extract and two tablespoons of butter. As beekeepers, we probably have three of the four in our pantry and we'll need a trip to the supermarket for heavy cream. It's something that uh, is probably not in your refrigerator. I'm going to go on a sidebar here for a sec. What the heck is the difference between heavy cream and whipping cream? It comes down to formulation. There are regular and heavy versions of each of these products. Whipping cream and heavy whipping cream differ in the amount of fat content and moisture. It turns out that heavy whipping cream and heavy cream are essentially the same thing and interchangeable. That means if you happen to have heavy whipping cream in your fridge, you can use it the same way that you would use heavy cream. Okay, so back to making caramel. You'll need the ingredients, of course, a pot, a candy thermometer, and for this recipe, an 8x8 pan to pour your caramel in to cool. When making caramel, use a high-sided pot as the liquid mixture is going to foam up considerably as the moisture is bubbling off and you don't want it to run over your stove. There's nothing worse than cleaning up burned sugar off your burners, I'd say, and the smell is really awful, and not to mention sugar burns flame lake, and it is dangerous. Before you start, you're going to want to prepare your pan and have everything ready to go. I use parchment to line the pan that I use. I cut it to the width of the pan and then made a sling one way and a sling the other way. For insurance, I melted a little bit of butter and brushed it on the inside of the pan just to make sure that the uh, caramel wasn't going to stick. In the video, I commented you could use cooking spray if you want, but I figured there's going to be any taste on the outside of the caramel I'd rather it to be butter to complement the caramel. So physically making the caramel, bring the honey and the heavy cream to a boil. Continue to raise the temperature to what is referred as the softball stage, which is on a thermometer between 235 degrees and 240 degrees. While it's not exciting to watch it come to the right temperature, never walk away from the pot is my suggestion. It will burn in the wink of an eye and there's no getting it back. During the process, the bubbles that are created from boiling the mixture will get really big and large in size. And then when it gets to softball stage, the bubbles will shrink and get smaller and more delicate. You're going to keep stirring the mixture that has... Uh, this combination of honey and heavy cream directly over the burner but leave it on medium heat and make sure it doesn't get overheated. I, I wanted to go in one direction here. Some people won't do this because you don't have a thermometer. There is a way to do it without a thermometer. It takes a little bit of practice but you spoon out some of the caramel into a cup with iced water in it. This is water with visible crushed ice, or ice, to be clear of what I mean. Not ice-cold water, but water with ice in it. 
once you spoon it in there, immerse your hand in the cold water and just grab the caramel mixture that you pulled out and try to form the sugar into a ball and then bring it out of the water. You can examine the shape and texture of the resulting marble and you can determine if it's done or not. If it's in the softball stage, you can flatten it when it's removed from the water and it almost oozes out and you just squeeze it and it goes and flattens out. If it's in the firm ball stage, meaning you cooked it too hard, it'll have more resistance and you'll have a harder time squeezing it until pressure is applied. It doesn't mean it's going to make a bad caramel. It's just going to be harder and could potentially become hard candy instead of soft and chewy and unctuous. I would suggest if you're going to go this route, go check it out on YouTube. There's a number of videos for how to do this technique without a thermometer. Okay, so when your mixture is to temperature, pull the pot away from the stove and immediately stir in the butter and the vanilla. Stir them in until it's combined and then pour the mixture into a prepared pan. This is a Kevin moment here. I always thought that if you poured vanilla into this, it was going to burn the alcohol off right away and dilute the flavor. I've always heard that you take the temperature down a little bit more and add the vanilla as close to the end as possible so that it maintains its flavor. Um, that's a food TV, Alton Brown kind of thing that I remember. End of Kevin moment. The one thing I'd say about the ingredients here is don't skimp on pure vanilla extract here. This is a product that you're going to put on your tongue and suck on, and you want that real vanilla flavor to come through like a loving hug. The cheap stuff doesn't cut it, and better yet, you can make your own with a vanilla pod, but I don't think I'd get that fussy about it. One other thing that most of us probably have is salted butter, and many recipes called for unsalted butter when baking. In this case, I think the salt is not a bad idea. It's a good contrast to the sweet of the honey, so I think it's perfectly fine to go with it, and that's what I did. Some people like to mix nuts and other things in caramel. I can't say I'm a fan of this, but go ahead if that floats your boat. I love the texture of nuts and chewing, but some things in caramel, even hard candies, they put the nuts in it, and you suck it down, and you get these hard little lumpy, yeah, it ruins it for me. To each his own, I guess. One thing that's popular when you're making caramel is to sprinkle some sort of salt over the top. Maybe a coarse sea salt when it's in the pan. So you pour it out and then you sprinkle it from on high. And on the tongue, when you put your caramel in your mouth, you get that immediate saltiness. And then it's followed right behind by the caramel flavor. Not a bad combination. And I did sprinkle some salt on the one that I made. Cool the caramel at room temperature for one hour, and then you're going to place it in the refrigerator for one hour. You could put it in the freezer also, your choice. Once it's cooled, you use the slings to remove it from the pan, and then cut them into, uh, say, three-quarter inch squares with a sharp knife. I individually wrapped mine in wax paper, and then I put them in a tin in the refrigerator to keep them from melting together. Even at room temperature, they will sog and, and melt together, and you got to pry them apart. So keep them cold until you're ready to eat them. 
Fact of the matter is I don't know that I'd leave these in the refrigerator for a long time. They'll probably pick up some off flavors, but my guess is you won't have them around for long. For the recipe I used as the base for this segment, you could visit the link I provided earlier or visit our show notes at www.bkcorner.org. If you want to see me in all my glory make this, you can go to youtube.com. The full video of the process I just described is up there, and you can see how I made it. Segment number three, we call this Flowers in Philly. Sharon and I had a date not too long ago when we took in the Philadelphia Flower Show. We had a number of dates picked out and kept finding conflicts and finally settled on the final weekend of the show, which was Saturday, March 7th. I've been to the flower show before and kind of knew what to expect and can appreciate the themed presentations and creativity of the displays. Being me, I figured there were also something beekeeping to be found in the whole show, and Sharon and I just had a good time, as usual, doing things together. We headed out early in the morning, and it was the right thing to do as the midday crowds were just crazy due to the bad weather of the previous week. Everybody came to the flower show that day, it appears. The theme of the show was Hollywood, or more so the movies. We arrived in the morning and walked the wrong way and ended up in the vendor display area off of the main hall. Immediately, we were greeted by the Subaru display, which was apiary-themed. They had a Subaru Outback or some Subaru car there wrapped in decals that were honeybee-themed, and they had a small pseudo-yard fenced in with a beekeeping-themed hives in the yard, plants and flowers, and displays along the fence with facts and figures about bees. Behind the outback, there were, the outback, there was a large skep-style beehive that had to be at least six foot high, and it had a fenced-in yard there. And I took a few photos, and especially like the display area they had in the back of the first display that I described, which consisted about, I'm going to say, 10 to 15 different hives in configurations three, four, five, six high, and they topped them with a flat cover, and they had um, computer displays on top where you could walk up and find out facts about the products that they sell in bees. Interactive displays with short little videos for people to participate. If anything, it's always interesting to gather ideas for these displays, and Sharon was really enthusiastic about potentially reproducing something like this for our county fair display. I'm glad that I took a lot of photos and then, you know, we walked away from there and did a bunch of other things through that main hall, including getting our cholesterol checked. We were both in good order there, so that's good to know. So one thing about the flower show is that it's just comforting to see flowers and get a taste of spring given the doldrums of this winter. I have a notion to become more savvy about what flowers are, what, uh, something that I'm just terrible. You could hold something in front of me and I couldn't tell you what it is from Adam. I stared intently at all the signs hoping to burn into memory what each thing was. And maybe sometime through the springtime I'll go, that's a something, and surprise Sharon. 
While it was a flower show, my mind has always been on the beekeeping angle, of course, and I saw a number of things to keep me interested. There were literally beehives set up in some of the displays as part of the themes. I spotted a display that had a credit for the Montgomery County Beekeepers Association in the Burks Brothers landscape setup, and there was a simple but impactful design espousing the idea of planting a garden to help the plight of the honeybees. The one um, display had a bridge through the middle and flower pots tipped over with flowers pouring out and honeybee hives sitting in the back. It was supposed to be, I guess, um, a honey bear themed thing out of Winnie the Pooh. So we walked from display to display, taking in, taking pictures, and just enjoying the day. The one thing I saw of interest to me, another beekeeping thing, which I'll share, was a rock garden watering plant. They had a pot buried in the soil, and it had a pump that allowed water to go up a length of copper tubing that stuck out of the ground and spilled out along a pile of stones that was set up at the tubing base. This would be an ideal way to provide water to your bees. I've seen something like this at the Old York Cellars Winery, and it was a perfect method for the bees to stop and get a drink. They land on the rocks that are not wet and walk down to the water as they don't like to get their feet uh, wet. So I think uh, with the pictures I took, I might try to build one of these this year if I find the time. So there's more to see after you finish with the flower displays. And we walk through the vendor area aisles looking at the various wares. Homemade jewelry, professional jewelry, tools, plants, services, and more. And during the walkthrough, we had a fortune of finding the display area of Bumbleberry Farms. This operation is based in Somerset, Pennsylvania, which I think is out towards Pittsburgh, if I have my facts correct. And they were doing tastings of honey products that they make and had a very well-packaged display area and signage. I was hesitant to approach the owner as they were really, really busy and there were a lot of people going by. But I did ask her if she had a moment to speak with me. And I have an interview with her. So I'm going to break for a second and play that. And then I'll come back and wrap this up and tell you the finals about the show. Hi, I'm here today with Karen, and we're at the Philadelphia Flower Show. And Karen, we stopped in your booth. You're selling products, and we actually bought a jar, and you're giving tastes of your product. Why don't you tell us what you have for sale today? Right. Well, uh, my name's Karen Mossholder, and I'm with Bumbleberry Farms. I'm a beekeeper, honey producer, and I was looking for a way to uh, make the most of the honey that I do produce. I'm in western Pennsylvania, and as you know, uh, it, when you're in the north, the, the honey... Uh, uh, season is not that long. So uh, what I did was create a product that I call a honey cream. Uh, I have lover's leaf sea salt caramel, squirrel crazy maple, sticky bun cinnamon, and molten lava spiced chocolate. And it's a value-added product that uh, you can use on toast, spread in coffee, drizzle over popcorn, uh, lots of uses for it. And it's been getting great reviews here at the show. And we tried a little bit, and it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, you have a website where I we do. can send I people do. to take a look? Yes, uh, www.bumbleberryfarms.com. 
Karen, thanks. I know there's 25 people lined up, so I'm going to let you go. But <laughs> All right. Appreciate thanks, you Kevin. taking a moment with us. No problem, and good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the fact that Karen took the time to talk with me. Uh, she was hesitant at first because we left her coworker to the wolves, but I promised to keep our chat brief, and she stepped aside with me, and we did that brief interview you heard. She, meant the, she mentioned the products she had for sale, and we purchased the Sticky Buns product, which needless to say was gone by the next morning. This stuff was really, really good. It's attractive packaging and spoke very well for the industry. It has a little story about uh, bumbleberry honey cream still crafted by hand and with fresh local goodies. And if you look what's in this, um, it, it's really just natural ingredients. Whole milk, cane or beet sugar, butter, honey, pure vanilla, cinnamon, and sea salt. Uh, we bought the 8-ounce variety. I'm guessing they have sizes of all different kinds. And it is highly likely that you can go to her website, which will provide a link from and buy the products there and i'll tell you you won't be disappointed it was really really good and i'm glad we stopped in and had a chance to talk to her um this stuff would be good on toast you could put it on cupcakes as an icing to me it reminded me of like a honey butter with flavorings in it and uh, really delicious stuff and we wish her the best in her endeavor again as uh, beekeepers please do consider supporting her. I get nothing from this other than just the satisfaction of knowing that we drove some business her way. And uh, hopefully she did really well at the show and uh, had a good session there because she came a long way to to uh, put her products out there. After the show, we wandered out. Uh, and as I said, as we were leaving, the people were just pouring through the entrance. It was almost standing room only in the front side of the show as people were entering. Sharon and I wandered around uh, that area. And if you know where the Philadelphia Flower Show is, it's right next to the Reading Terminal Market. We made the mistake of going in there. And if you've ever had the pleasure of going somewhere with me the one thing that i detest is standing shoulder to shoulder front to back with a bunch of different people and it was standing room only in there we walked through about 20 20 minutes or so and it was all that i could stand we did find a honey stand in there and uh, we're looking at the various products and saw a type of honey called butter bean honey i'd never heard of that uh, presumably the forage was on butter beans and we bought a jar of that and brought it home and since that day we've consumed it it was actually what i used to make the honey caramel too and uh really good product enjoyed that um you know day in the city really have a good time it's funny because i've I keep saying to sharon i want to go back there i've never been to the liberty bell <laughs> and some of the things that are there you'd think um Given the vicinity to the city that we have for Philadelphia, uh, we would do that. And I'd love to go back to the Reading Market and explore that honey stand again. So I have to put that on the to-do list some nice day during the summertime. Make a jaunt down there and go see what's going on in the city of brotherly love. If you do by chance, go over to the Bumbleberry Farms Honey website and order some products. Do what you can to give us a mention. I'd love for her to know that this little segment resulted in some sales for her and uh, paid a favor in kind of her giving us time to do the interview.
The website is bumbleberryfarms.com, as she mentioned, and we'll have a link in our show notes. All done with the segment features for this episode, let's head to the back of the book. We call this the roundtable section. Roundtable number one, Roundup the Roundup. The health agency WHO, or World Health Organization, recently published a report that indicates that glyphosate sold by Monsanto under the brand name Roundup as an herbicide is a likely carcinogen. You know, I have always called that glyphosate or something like that. I always never recognized that I said the name wrong. Glyphosate is the product. The research was done by the International Agency for Research on Cancer and was published in a UK medical journal. There have been a number of groups warning of the health problems from this weed killer, but the manufacturer Monsanto contests that these findings are not actually accurate, and decades of research have proved that glyphosate is safe. I think we've talked a number of times on this podcast about this product and even the fact that our neighbors are applying this to the fields alongside our property. Of course, it's not limited to where we live. Glyphosate is the most used herbicide in the United States based on EPA data. GMO crops, especially corn and soybean, were engineered to be herbicide tolerant and according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, were used on 94% of the soybean fields these products that are uh, made specifically to work with glyphosate, and 89% of the U.S. cornfields. There are a number of outlets that reported this story, and the one that I reference is from the Wall Street Journal. It reports that studies from the U.S., Canada, and Sweden showed, quote, increased risks for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, along with a positive trend for some ailments in mice in separate studies, end quote, Though the researchers cited, quote, limited evidence, end quote, that glyphosate was a carcinogen for humans, they did classify it as probably carcinogenic, according to the article. Monsanto countered with their own statements, contesting it as safe, and again, according to the Wall Street Journal, quote, the company said the research agency didn't establish a link between glyphosate and an increase in cancer. And that the IARC researchers disregarded dozens of scientific studies that showed glyphosate poses no human health risk, end quote. It seems Monsanto, it's, it is said, is requesting a meeting with the World Health Organization to discuss the classification. It appears, according to the article, that the Beyond Pesticide group is using this We're going to use this as information to lobby the USDA and the EPA to revisit policies on glyphosate and genetically modified crops that were designed to work in conjunction and withstand any of the harm from the product. These are the so-called Roundup-ready crops. I would say this is interesting if it weren't so patently obvious what the risk is here. If found to be accurate, the scale of the impact is unthinkable when wondering how the U.S. and abroad could have in these modern times allowed something like this to exist in nature and society. 
If this thing really does turn out to be carcinogenic, how the heck did it get out there? And the scary part to me is not only is it being sprayed on all our fields far and wide, it's in everybody's home. Go look in your garage. You probably have a bottle of it. It's sold through stores left and right. I read at one point that Roundup salesmen were drinking this stuff to prove how it wasn't harmful to humans. And then subsequently coming down with terrible afflictions, which is not funny, but gross. Anyway, I've I've talked both times uh, on this episode about how it was not that much of a concern. But yet this noise has always been out there and now it's vindicated through the World Health Organization. I have to say in this case, and oddly enough, I really hope Monsanto is right. Because I certainly don't want to learn that this stuff has been sprayed next door. So by the way, given our government track record, I'm hoping they don't wait to find out and we'll take action on behalf of the consumers and obviously public health. Scare tactics as they are, this is the World Health Organization, and I can't fathom they have some sort of agenda, like beekeepers who are accused of you know, going after the pesticides, and sometimes people say they don't have their science right. As by example, Dutch uh, citizens have gone and complained, and Russia, Tasmania, Mexico also have implemented bans on this product, and the Netherlands will be banning it after 2015. So this is one to keep an eye on. In the show notes, I'll have a link to the Wall Street Journal article, but you can probably look it up anywhere on Google or Bing. This one is Health Agency Says Widely Used Herbicides Likely Carcinogenic. Roundtable number two is a little lighter in topic. That's a welcome relief. This one I call Hexagons on Point. I've been entertaining the notion for creating a new BK Corner logo, kind of freshening it up, and was considering using comb shapes in the design. A funny thing happened along the way. I had a moment where I had to stop and think about the orientation of the hexagon in the makeup of the comb. Now stop for a minute and think about the shape in your mind. Six sides. Now picture it in a 3D form. You're holding it in your hand. Okay, got the image? Now you want to orient it in the way that it is assembled for a honeycomb. What way would you turn it if you were looking at the hexagon straight on? Could you set it down on the table on the flat side? Or would you have to stand on its pointy end? The answer, drum roll please, you would stand it on its end. If you were paying attention, the title actually gave away the answer. It's called hexagons on point. The sides where the cells touch each other are lined straight up and down. I read somewhere that when pressure is applied over time to a bunch of circles stacked in the manner in which comb is built, the corners would eventually express in the hexagon shape. If you think about the way the bees build their comb, it's been said that they build circles, but in time as they're working on it in pressures, it ends up making that hexagon shape. To me, 
I want to think of our girls as great little mathematicians. Roundtable number three is called Bees in Space. If you think about the Battlestar Galactica days or Star Wars or whatever, you have to believe that life was transported off of the Earth out into space and we needed plants. Plants in a huge monolithic spaceship have to be pollinated. And the question is, who pollinates them? We know that the honeybee may be the most efficient pollinator on Earth, but in the case of space, they don't do very well. And actually, scientists are thinking that the better candidate would be bumblebees. If you took a bee and put it in a glass turned upside down, it would just fly around being disoriented. And they also know, I guess, that bees do not do well in space, in the vacuum of space. Bumblebees, on the other hand, are already established to be in small enclosed spaces. You may or may not know that many of the greenhouse pollination that takes place in large operations use bumblebees instead of honeybees inside the greenhouses to pollinate the plants. Bumblebees, by this means, have been conditioned to work indoors and scientists are considering the idea that they might be the ideal pollinator to take up in a spaceship to pollinate plants on a long journey to our future colonization. To learn more about this, go to our show notes. We'll have a link to the article that was the source of this. And there's also a reference document from 2012 from Nardone Kevan, K-E-V-A-N. My nickname is Kevan, K-E-V-V-A-N. And Stasiak and Dixon, Atmospheric Pressure Requirements of Bumblebees as Pollinators of Lunar or Martian Greenhouse Grown Food from Gravitational and Space Biology. Neat. That's a neat one to go check out. Roundtable number four, Restore the Native Black Honeybees in the UK. We consider fellow podcaster Phil Chandler as a friend and have learned that he is promoting a program in the UK to restore the native black honeybee, which has been in the area since the Ice Age. Phil is the director of a group called Friends of the Bees, which has established some hives to get started and is looking to raise money to manage a breeding program and to gather equipment to place throughout the area to reestablish these bees in their rightful place. They are running a campaign to fund the effort, and if this is of interest or you just want to help them out, visit his website at biobees.com slash blackbees. There you'll find a video intro from Phil, some background information they've shared, and a summary of the aims of the program. There is, of course, a means to donate if you are interested. Again, the web address is biobees.com slash blackbees. And don't forget the S on the end. Incidentally, those who are not familiar with Phil, he's a preeminent resource on top bar hives and natural beekeeping techniques. So while you're there, take a look at biobees.com if that is of interest to you. Good luck, Phil, with your effort there. Roundtable number five, this one's called Not from the Land of the Mermaids. It's a correction on my part from the email that came through listener mail from Cindy Aaron. She's from Wee Wahichka, Florida, 
land of Tupelo honey. I mistakenly said she was from Wikiwachi. And I guess I have to ask, who the heck names these places down there in Florida? <laughs> I said before, Wikiwachi is the place just south of where my in-laws live and where we happen to be going to visit um, this week. And Cindy apparently is up nor the near the panhandle instead. Still, it's nice to hear from you and appreciate you writing in. Um, I don't think we'll be making a run up there, but... Uh, Maybe some other time when we're cruising around Florida, going the other direction, actually, to go see my father in Okeechobee. So don't think we'll be getting up there. Um, it could be noted that Stan Wasatowski is visiting Florida for his summer home, and I'm looking forward to trying to hook up with Stan down there. And then he's coming back the following week. I think it's April 10th to New Jersey and bringing some bees back and bringing packages that he picks up from his uh, partner supplier down there in Georgia. And uh, we'll be doing a package install at our spring meeting in April. So looking forward to have Stan and Fran back with us and looking forward to visiting them and stopping in and see how they're doing down there in Florida as they've been snowbirds for the last couple of weeks. Um, we've been planning and we just had a good meeting this past weekend for the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association. Charlie Ilsley uh, did a presentation on his swarm prevention techniques, which I'll probably circle back in our next episode and bring you some of that. Charlie had made a connection, and we also had a speaker, Dr. David Gilley, in from the West William Patterson University to speak with us about swarm dynamics and it was a great session overall if the video came out. We're hoping to see if we can get that posted up to YouTube. In addition, Jim McCauley, our, my first officer, uh, did a presentation on making mite shakers. Did an experiment where you don't have to use uh, different um, heating devices to put the thing together. I'll, I'll explain that more when we get to it. Have a chance to process that video and put it up also. So uh, already kicked off for the beekeeping season had a question at the meeting about drone brood and culling for varroa mite and thought that would be of interest to give a mention here. Uh, people are questioning integrated pest management and what that means. You hear that bantied about, but it's never really described. In my mind, the definition of in integrated pest management is various techniques used in combination to eliminate pests in the hive. They can be natural or they could potentially be chemical in nature. I guess it's the choice of the beekeeper. In this case, culling drone brood is a means by which you can get rid of varroa in your hive. People buy the Pierco green frames or you can make a simple drone brood frame by putting a divider bar through the middle of a standard frame. The bees will typically react in a manner to build drone brood down below and honey up in the top. And then once it's capped, you cull that drone uh, comb out, and with it go the mites. The theory is that 90% of all the mites inside the hive that are going in prefer drone brood. And if you cull the drone brood, you are getting rid of the mites, or a good majority of it. Uh, it's a technique we've talked about a number of times here. The key thing is don't breed mites. 
if you're putting drone brood frames in and then you're not culling them, you're actually making mite factories. But I digress on that, given the time frame we are in this episode. Uh, more information on that will come up as we talk about spring management probably in our next episode. I guess looking at where the clock is and being mindful of how long you've been sitting there listening to me, it's time to close it up. I wanted to give a special thanks to Roger Gares. He held a B Social, which I think I mentioned in the last episode was coming up at the Old York Cellars Winery. Uh, enjoyed some time with friends, enjoyed a little bit of mead, and everybody brought a little bit of dish, and we had some great fellowship there. Uh, also, his son, Scott, who's the winemaker there, took us up into the uh, tank room and showed us how the operation ran and talked about different things they have going on. And the operation has really grown, and their products are really good. And um, we enjoyed a nice evening there and appreciate Roger extending the invitation out. I guess that's about it. We'll close here, and uh, I'll see you folks when we come back from Florida um, that's it. Can't think of anything else to share. There's probably some that I forgot, but it'll have to wait till next time. So until next time, remember, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.